right, greetings to all of our campuses. Thanks for being here. You know, we, we are a church that believes that when we gather together, God is here. And he does some amazing things. You know, if you're new to Christ's community, one of the things you may notice is that we do the teaching early in the service, early in the service. And the reason we do that is because we want to have opportunity at the end of the service, we want an opportunity to respond to, the, to God's word through prayer and worship and the Lord's Supper, things like that. And we want you to experience God today. And we, we really believe that's, that's, that's going to happen. And so I'm thrilled you're here because I believe God wants to speak to you and he wants to move in your heart and, and your life as well as mine. We are in the midst of a teaching series this summer uh, entitled Jesus Unexpected. In this series, we are discovering or rediscovering who Jesus is because when we see Jesus as he really is, our lives get impacted in a significant way. And we all want that. Um, now, now here's the challenge. How do we know who Jesus is? How do we know what he's like? I mean, obviously, Jesus was an incredible, historic figure, huge impact, but there is a tendency in all of us to want to kind of make this Jesus into who we want him to be. I mean, have you ever noticed how in most every movie or television series focused on the life of Jesus, Jesus is Anglo and has a British accent? Uh, you know, I never, I didn't realize Jesus was from England, um, but I guess he was. Uh, it kind of cracks me up every time. I mean, Jesus was actually from the Middle East. Um, with darker skin and a Jewish accent. But movies about him never seem to get that, which just underscores this point that all of us have a tendency to try and make Jesus into who we want him to be. But when we do that, we end up missing the real Jesus. We end up missing the impact that he can have in our lives. And so in this series, we are wanting to see afresh who this Jesus is. Our guidebook in this journey is the book of Luke. Luke was a physician, a companion of the Apostle Paul. And at some point, he decided to write, to do diligent research, and, and, and to present to non-religious people um, a, a clear picture of who Jesus is. And so Luke interviewed eyewitnesses, he compiled oral tradition, and he put together this amazing book. And so in it, we, have this, we see this incredibly detailed, well-researched account of Jesus' life. Well, today we find ourselves in chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Feel free to turn there if you have your Bible or iPad or smartphone or whatever. Feel free to turn there. We're going to be looking at a very interesting encounter that happens very early on in Jesus' life. In fact, this whole section happens when Jesus was a baby, being dedicated at the temple. You know, I vividly remember when Raylene and I dedicated our first child, Aaron. Um, the church was much smaller then and had very few children in the nursery. So this was a big deal. I had a song that I had prepared I was going to sing. And, and I had another pastor on staff that was going to do the, the dedication and the prayer part. And, and before the service, before the service, I'd ask a friend of mine to videotape the child dedication. And so I went over with him, here, you know, the instructions. Here's how to do it. Make sure he knew how to use the video recorder. And I did not want to miss getting this on tape. So during the service, we had the child dedication. I sang my song. There was a prayer of dedication for Aaron. It was really, really cool. And it just so happened that immediately after that service, Raylene and I and Aaron, we were going up to the mountains for a couple days vacation. And so we went up to Estes Park, and I got great video footage of Aaron and Raylene and, and all of that. So when we got back, we decided that we wanted to watch the video of this child dedication to relive the joy of, of this experience. So I rewound it, and, um, and, and that was back in the olden days when you actually had to rewind. You had to use videotape. 
um, and then started up, and, and the only thing on it was our vacation footage in Estes. I could not find the baby dedication, and suddenly it hit me. My friend had rewound the tape before giving it to us, so I had inadvertently taped over it. Gone forever. But I'm not bitter, okay? Maybe a little bitter. But, uh, but, but thankfully, we have a very clear and accurate record of the child dedication of Jesus. And it is a baby dedication like no other. In this passage, we learn some very unexpected and maybe even uncomfortable things about Jesus. But they are things that can significantly impact our relationship with him. So let me read beginning in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child... He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so what is going on here? From a parental level, we see a vivid picture of the desire and the dedication of Mary and Joseph as parents to honor the Lord in how they raise their child. They are following God's law to a T. First, they have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, just as described in, in Leviticus chapter 12. Then, about five weeks after that, they, they, they travel from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, which is about five miles on foot, um, to the temple in order to present Jesus to the Lord, again, according to the law. And finally, on the same trip to the temple, they offered a sacrifice. Uh, they were going to offer a sacrifice of purification according to the law of Moses described in the book of Leviticus. We're told here that they offered a pair of doves or pigeons as their sacrifice. Now, that, this is significant because the offering, the, the, off, the, the offering of birds was an allowance. It was an allowance made for people who couldn't afford a lamb. So we know here that Mary and Joseph are poor. Can, can you imagine this scene? Here is this poor couple from a very small village, the village of Nazareth, population 100 people, Entering Jerusalem, a city of probably 100,000 people at that time, it was a city with lots of noise and lots of activity and lots of trade. You know, it perhaps, just to give a modern-day example, it perhaps felt sort of like the, the Greeley Stampede Carnival and Arena, you know, on the evening of a Martina McBride concert, if that can kind of give you a word picture here of what was happening. So after this five-mile trek, dusty trek to the city, Mary holding her baby as they work through the crowd to the temple courts, which is also filled with people who are offering sacrifices. There was nothing that would cause this young, this young couple to stand out in the crowd. There was no little halo over Jesus' head, right? I mean, they were just a poor, young, ordinary couple offering a very simple sacrifice to the Lord. Again, no one, including any priest, no one would have paid any special attention to them. However, in the midst of this busy throng of people, something pretty extraordinary happened. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit... 
he went into the temple courts. Okay, so we're introduced here to this man named Simeon, a man who was righteous and devout. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was on him. What does that mean? It means that Simeon had an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is something that we all have access to because of Jesus. I mean, one of the themes that Luke emphasizes in this book and in the book of Acts, which he also wrote, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Luke shows us that experiencing the Spirit is normal Christianity. It's not abnormal. It is normal Christianity. That the Spirit is a vital part of what it looks like to walk with God. And in this passage, we have a great example of someone living this out, living this out in their day-to-day lives. Here is Simeon. In the midst of a typical day, going about his business, when all of a sudden he senses the Spirit speaking, go to the temple courts. The language Luke uses here makes it clear that this was not an audible voice thundering from from heaven. Luke simply says that Simeon was moved by the Spirit. He was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple courts at that moment in time. And this is typically how the Spirit speaks to us. Not in a dramatic, audible, you know, voice sort of way, thundering from heaven or whatever. Typically, the Spirit speaks to us through a gentle whisper, something we could easily ignore. But when we pay attention to that whisper, when we pay attention to it and respond to that prompting, wonderful ministry can happen. Just the other day, a friend of mine shared about how God had laid on her heart. She was praying for a friend of hers going in for surgery, and God had laid on her heart um, the, the, this, this person that was praying had laid on her heart a, a Bible verse for the woman going into surgery. And so instead of ignoring that kind of prompting, she texted the woman um, the verse and let her know that she was praying for her. And the woman texted back saying that someone else that very morning had given her the exact same verse. And so she should probably pay attention to that. I mean, it's just evidence that God wants to speak to us. I wrote a book last fall. Many of you have, have, have read this, but it's called More. Um, and and, and it, there are four chapters in this book. If, if this is, has you intrigued in terms of how do you hear the Spirit's voice, there are four chapters in that book on how to hear God speak. And you can, you can pick that up on Amazon or, or Kindle, or you can also in, in a church bookstore. But who knows, really, who knows what cool things God might want to do through us if we just listen, as we listen to his promptings and then obey. That's exactly what Simeon did. And because of it, he got to be a part of something very special, something God had actually promised to him, that he would get to see the Messiah before he died. And so in obedience to this prompting, Simeon goes to the temple courts, and there in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of all the crowds and the noise and all that, he sees Mary and Joseph. Perhaps I think the Holy Spirit was able to help him just to pick them out from this throng of of people. Verse 27, when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
what's happening here is that Simeon is giving a prophetic word. A prophetic word is when the Holy Spirit reveals to someone information that they wouldn't know otherwise, and then they speak that forth. That's what's happening here. That's the situation here. As Simeon holds the baby Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives him specific insight about the child's future, about the purposes and the impact of his life. And quite honestly, what he says here about Jesus is fairly unexpected, perhaps even a bit shocking to many. Earlier, we talked about how we tend to try and make Jesus into who we want him to be, but Simeon's words here blow that to bits, right? There, there are three, three unexpected truths about Jesus that Simeon reveals, and I want to highlight here. First, Jesus' mission is multi-ethnic. Jesus' mission is multi-ethnic. Now, I know multi-ethnicity is kind of a buzzword today, and, and I think that's a good thing. But what I think is fascinating here is that Jesus was about multi-ethnicity before it was cool to be so, right? I mean, he was born at a, as a Jew at a time when the Jews were pretty separatistic. They were a pretty exclusive lot. They didn't really associate with, with much with Gentiles, at least voluntarily. They, they very much resented the Roman rule that they suffered under, and they were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them as a nation, deliver them from this oppression. They were looking for a political Messiah in the mold of King David, who would basically raise them up militarily so that they could overthrow Rome and restore God's kingdom, God's rule on earth. That's what they wanted. That's what they were focused on. They had, they had completely lost sight of God's initial words to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that God was going to bless Abraham's descendants so that they could be a blessing to the world. Genesis 12, first book of the Bible. That was the promise. God was going to bless Israel so they could be a blessing to the world. But the Israelites at this time had forgotten that. That was not on the radar. It was not on their radar when Jesus was born. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Roman rule and establish Israel as being the, the nation in charge. It was a very exclusive vision. Now, before we get too critical, become too critical of the Jews at that time, can we, can we at least admit that we have a tendency to do the same thing? To see Jesus as being primarily for our particular ethnicity or our particular nationality. I mean, why else would we make movies with Jesus being white and having an English accent? Right? So, so into this context, this is the context. I'm giving you a background, the backdrop here. Into this context, notice what Simeon says. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. This salvation through Jesus is for all nations, not just the Jews. Yes, the Jews are God's chosen people, and Jesus' coming is for them, but not only for them. We see here the scope of this salvation that Jesus will offer. It is not simply for a select few or a particular people group. No, it is for everyone, no matter what ethnicity, background, religious or non-religious upbringing, no matter what failures, mistakes, brokenness we have. Jesus came for all people, including you and me including the neighbor who is different, a different nationality than you, 
including the person at work with a different political persuasion than you or a different sexual orientation than you, including the family member who doesn't even believe in God. Jesus came to be a light of revelation to all people, which leads to a second unexpected truth about Jesus that Simeon proclaims. Jesus brings division. What? Division? What are you talking about? Well, let's look and see. Verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Okay, hold it. Stop right there. This is not the Jesus we are expecting. This is not the Jesus we are used to hearing about, is it? This isn't the Jesus we expect. Often when we think about Jesus or people talk about Jesus, we envision him as being this meek and and mild, kind and peaceful figure who is just wanting to make sure everyone has a good time. He would never bring division. He would never say anything that's offensive to anyone, right? I mean, that's the Jesus we expect. But it's not the Jesus Simeon describes. Simeon declares that Jesus will be a divisive figure. He says that Jesus will cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. Now later on in in Jesus' ministry, he himself declares this. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Again, this is not the meek and mild Jesus we expect. Jesus is declaring that the salvation he brings requires a particular response. It is not a salvation that is just given to anyone and everyone. It's available, but it's not given to anyone and everyone. It is a salvation that is given to those who choose to embrace Jesus as Savior, who choose to acknowledge their need and place their trust and their faith in Jesus. And not everyone is going to do this. Not everyone is going to do this. He will cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. In other words, every person has to choose what they will do with Jesus. For those who embrace him, who receive him, he pours out life and forgiveness, the blessing of a relationship with him. They, they are raised, this is the rising part, they are raised with Christ. Incredible spiritual blessings are theirs. But for those who choose not to embrace him, who decide they don't want Jesus calling the shots in their life, they don't need the forgiveness he offers, for them, Jesus is a stumbling block. He causes them to fall, spiritually speaking. They miss out on a relationship with God. They miss out on the blessings that the Messiah offers. They miss out on salvation. Now, this is not, I mean, let's just be honest, this is not a popular viewpoint today. We live in a world where tolerance has become more important than truth. And by tolerance, I'm not talking about simply having a loving attitude towards people around us. That's a non-negotiable. We're clearly supposed to do that. We're supposed to love everyone. I'm talking about the way our society defines tolerance. See, in our society, tolerance means accepting every person's ideas and beliefs as equally valid. 
as equally true. It means accepting everyone's ideas as equally valid. In other words, no one can claim to know the way to God. No one can say that a particular behavior is wrong. We must accept every behavior and every idea as being equally correct. See, that's, that's tolerance. In our, that's the way our society defines tolerance. Jesus throws out that definition of tolerance. He throws it right out the window. See, for Jesus, love is the defining value. Not tolerance. Love is the defining value. And love requires him to speak the truth. I mean, if someone is headed down a road where a bridge is out up ahead, and we know the bridge is out, what should our response be? Well, I, I don't want to tell them the bridge is out, you know. I don't want to offend them. I mean, their perspective is just as valuable as mine. I want to I be tolerant. Of course not. We wouldn't say that. Love moves us to tell them. Jesus loves us enough to speak the truth. He declared himself to be the Savior, the pathway to God. And then he died on a cross for our sins. In making these bold declarations and demonstrations, Jesus basically forces every person to make a decision about him one way or another. One way or the other. Embrace him or reject him. But you can't ignore him. Embrace him or reject him, but you can't ignore him. To ignore him is to reject him. I mean, this is the most important issue for every person. Which side of Jesus are you on? Which side of Jesus are you on? The rising or the falling? Will Jesus be for you a stumbling block or will he be for you a life-giving savior? Again, that's the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. Now, there may be some of you here who have chosen to say no to Jesus because of things you've seen or experiences you've had with other Christians or whatever. Hypocrisy, anger, self-righteousness, abuse, whatever. And I get that. I totally get that. But listen very Listen very carefully. Don't base your response to Jesus on certain followers of Jesus. There is too much at stake. Make your decision based on him alone. Examine for yourself who he is and then make your choice based on him. And again, Luke, the book of Luke provides this great place for us to examine him. This eyewitness account, these eyewitness accounts from a physician writing with a scientific mindset, writing this book. It's a great place to explore who Jesus is. But don't make your decision based on certain followers of Jesus. Base your decision based on him. Embrace him or reject him, but at least base your decision on him. Now, there's one other unexpected truth about Jesus that Simeon highlights, and, and, and that is this. Following Jesus involves suffering. Look, look, look again at Simeon's words. This child is destined to cause the, the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Jesus will be spoken against. As he exposes the hearts of people, he will suffer for that. And he did. Many religious leaders hated him, 
looking for ways to kill him. They finally succeeded. He was tortured, beaten, mocked, spit upon, and then hung naked on a cross, all for a crime he didn't commit. Those looking upon him that day, as he hung there on the cross, those looking upon him mocked him. Yeah, he could save others, but he couldn't save himself. But of course, they missed the point. By dying on the cross, by suffering in that way, he was saving us. He was purchasing our salvation, making a way for us sinful spiritual failures to enter into a love relationship with God forever. So suffering is a critical part of Jesus' mission. It's a critical part of Jesus' mission. But that's not the only thing Simeon says about suffering. After talking about Jesus' suffering, he turns to Mary and he says to her, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What's he talking about? The language he uses here is not describing a little scratch. This is a full-blown, double-edged sword that he says will pierce Mary's soul. She will experience an anguish of soul as she watches her son be spoken against and then die a horrible death on the cross. See, for Mary, following Jesus will result in suffering. And we might say, yeah, 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 I get that. It's true for Mary, but not the rest of us. I mean, suffering is not a part of following Jesus. Isn't the Christian life all about victory and joy and and blessing? Well, look at what Jesus himself says a bit later in the same book, book of Luke, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. See, notice how he first talks about his own suffering. It's going to involve a cross. He's talking about his own suffering. And then he turns around. He turns to all those standing right there. He turns to them and he says to them all, so if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your own cross. You must take up your cross. In other words, following Jesus will at times involve suffering. It may cost us something to follow him. We may be passed over for a promotion because of our faith in Christ. We may lose a friendship. We may be made fun of at school or mocked by a professor simply because we are followers of Jesus. Are we ready for that? Are we ready for that? Are we okay with that? Does that fit into our understanding of who Jesus is? Right? Does that fit into our understanding of who Jesus is and, 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 and what following him may mean? I'm not sure it does. In America, you know, a lot of times I don't think this fits into a lot of Christianity in America. We don't have much of a theology for suffering, do we? But it's certainly biblical. A few weeks ago, if you were here, you may remember we had a, 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 as our, at our church, a, a ministry partner from Syria. Um, he's involved in helping lead a church planning movement in, in Syria. And so he was here in person. He shared about how some of his Christian friends have had their children kidnapped by ISIS. He himself has been threatened 
His family's been threatened. Churches all around there have been bombed. Christians beheaded. He shared about how every day these believers face the possibility of death because they're followers of Jesus. I met with him and his wife for lunch, and they talked about how they're going back to Syria to minister the love and the gospel of Jesus. Even though his life has been threatened, they're going back to Syria, even though it means placing themselves at risk. I, I look at these people, and I look at their commitment to Jesus, and I wonder, is that the kind of commitment that I have to Jesus? Is that the kind of commitment we have to Jesus? Are we committed to Jesus only as long as he blesses us? Only as long as things go our way? Or are we committed to him even when we're persecuted for that commitment? Even when it costs us something? Simeon's words here force us to take Jesus out of the boxes that we try and put him in. You know, the safe, comfortable Jesus who never offends he, and, and, and who causes peace and harmony everywhere. And always promises, you know, that nothing bad will happen to us or whatever. If you're following him, blessings will always follow and, and all that stuff. And instead, Simeon invites us to see a Jesus who invites us to follow even when that decision may result in persecution, in hardship, in difficulty, even death. Are we all in? Are, are we all in? Are we still willing to follow Jesus then? Now, we could easily turn this into a guilt-ridden call to commitment, how we need to be more devoted to Jesus, but I think that misses the heart of the issue. What is it? Here's the deeper question. What is it that would move us to follow Jesus in this way? What would enable us to face suffering and difficulty for his sake? Well, the answer to that question is found in the words of Simeon. Remember Simeon's first words when he saw Jesus. He's holding the child. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Let me rephrase what he's saying here. Now that I have seen Jesus, my Savior, nothing in this world compares. I'm ready to let go of this world, even if it means dying, because I now have him. Simeon's complete satisfaction was found in this Messiah, this Savior that he had been waiting for. And once he had seen Jesus, nothing else mattered. Once he had seen Jesus, nothing else mattered. Now, I realize the circumstances are different, but the, the heart issue is very much the same for us here. It's, the, it's very same, same issue. Here it is. What, what, what enables us to lose jobs for Jesus' sake or to lose friends for Jesus' sake or to lose our lives for Jesus' sake? What enables us to do that is not guilt-ridden obligation or duty. No, no, no. What enables us to suffer for him is to see to truly see him as our savior, to see him as the one who gave his all for us. He gave his all for us. He gave his life for us. And in that seeing, to realize there is nothing that compares to him. 
There is nothing this world offers that, that satisfies like he alone satisfies. Nothing. It's to say, you know, like, like, like the, the words of that old hymn, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. So let me ask, does that describe your heart toward Jesus? Does that describe your relationship with him? Is Jesus just kind of one cool thing in your life along with lots of other cool things? Or is he your one thing? Is he the ultimate longing of your heart, the ultimate satisfier of your soul, so that everything else pales in comparison? Remember, Jesus was once asked what the greatest, the most, the most important commandment was. Do you remember his answer? It wasn't obey the Lord, follow the Lord, fear the Lord, worship the Lord. Even though those are all important things, those are all good things. But remember his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love him. See, when, when we get that right, when he is at the center of our affection, when he is at the center of our heart, when he is our ultimate desire because of being our savior and all he has given for us, when we see him in that way and now he is our ultimate desire, that reality enables us to face anything, including hardships, grief, suffering, even death for his sake. So let me just ask, is Jesus your one thing? Is he your first love? Is he my first love? That's what he wants to be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's it. That summarizes it all. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word that elevates Jesus, that shows us what Jesus is like. And we, we just confess right up front, we, we tend to put him in boxes. We tend to mold him into who we want him to be. But we thank you that you love us too much to let us do that. You, you want to show us who he really is, the truth of who he is. So thank you for that. So I want to encourage us right now just to ask that question before the Lord. Is Jesus my one thing? Or is he sort of one cool thing among lots of cool things? Or is he your one thing? Is he your first love? Just ask that question before the Lord for a moment. Lord, I, I confess, along with probably most of us here, that often you are not my one thing. I lose sight of you. We lose sight of you in the midst of all that's going on in life. And we lose sight of the sacrifice you made for us, that you gave not just 20 bucks, not just a little uh, help thing here. You gave your life. You gave your all on the cross for us.
And we pray you would open our eyes to see you, Jesus, as Savior. And open our hearts to respond to that with love and affection. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come right now and stir that in our hearts. Increase it. Our desire, our passion, our affection for you, Jesus. That we would look at everything the world has to offer and realize there is nothing that compares. I would rather have you, Jesus, than anything else. Holy Spirit, would you do that in us? Do that in us. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Now, while we're, we're, our heads are bowed here and we're just kind of reflecting on that and just letting the Spirit do that, I want to give just another invitation here because there may be some of you here and, and, and the question for you is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And maybe for a long time you've ignored him. You've maybe seen other followers of Christ, supposed that other Christians or other church, you know, whatever. You've had bad experiences with Christians and, and, or, or you have doubts, questions, whatever. And, and you, you've just kind of said, ah, just I'm not going to have any of that stuff. You can't ignore him. Don't base your decision on other people. Look at him. Look at Jesus and what he's done for you. And I believe there are some of you here, and you, what you need to do tonight is embrace him. You need, today you need to embrace him. Not have all your questions answered. You just need to say yes to him. And so I want to encourage you right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an opportunity to do that. If you're kind of on the fence and you realize you need Jesus, you need his forgiveness in his life, you want to you want to make sure that you are on, on the rising side with Jesus, not the falling side. I want to give you an opportunity to open your heart to receive him now. So if that's you, I invite you to pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I admit that you are holy and I'm not. I'm separated from you because of my sin, my brokenness. I choose to go my own way. I admit that about myself. And I realize I'm separated from you because of that, but I don't want to be separated from you. And even though there's nothing in my own power I could do to get to you, you came to me. You sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to pay for my sin, all of it. Unbelievable. You did that. And right now, I am choosing to place my trust in you alone, Jesus. I bring you my sin and my faults and my failures and my fears and my doubts and questions. I just bring all of me, all the yucky stuff, all the good stuff, just all of me. I bring it to you. And I lay myself at your feet. And I receive the life that you offer. I receive your forgiveness, forgive my sins, past, present, and the sins I haven't even committed yet, all of them under your blood. And I receive you through the presence of your spirit. Come live in me, Holy Spirit, changing me from the inside out. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in their relationship with you. 
as they follow you, as they love you, you would help them grow in that relationship. And I pray that for all of us. We would grow in our love for you as we, as our hearts are filled more and more with you as Savior, what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord. One of the tangible ways to express this to the Lord is through the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper at all of our campuses. And the way we're going to do this is uh, the worship team is going to, just in a couple moments, the worship team is going to um, lead us in a time of worship. And we have some tables set up around the room with bread and juice. And we invite you at any point during the worship to come up to a table and, um, and break off a piece of bread. You can dip it in the cup with the juice and then, then partake of the elements right there. If you want to do that and then step to the side, if you want to take that back to your seat, you can do that as well. But we want to just engage, as we're engaging in worship, to let our hearts be filled with this love that Jesus has for us and to express that. And so as you partake of the bread and the juice, let love be your motivation. Let love fill your heart in response for what Jesus has done through you. So why don't we, why don't we stand and let me pray for us, and then I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. And, and again, at any point during the worship time, you can go to uh, the tables and, and, and partake of the bread and, and the juice. Holy Spirit, we thank you for these moments of worship and this opportunity. We, we entrust this to you. We pray that as we partake of the bread, as we partake of the juice, our hearts would be filled with love for you, Jesus. That in our hearts we would say, I'd rather have you than anything the world offers. You are alone satisfied. You are my ultimate desire, Jesus. So do that in us now as we worship and as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Thank you.